Welcome to Bitcoin Fixes This, where we explore the impact that Bitcoin will have in all aspects of society. Today's guest is Alex Gladstein, Chief Strategy Officer for the Human Rights Foundation. We talk about human rights, how money plays a role, and how Bitcoin already is helping in surprising ways. Alex also tells us how he first heard about Bitcoin, why he's pushing for human rights activists to use it, and why he thinks privacy is such a critical part of Bitcoin's future. Alex, how are you doing? Great, Jimmy. Thanks for having me on. Excited to see you start this thing up. Yeah. Uh, how, how are you doing these days? I know the world's kind of crazy, especially in the field of human rights and stuff like that. Yeah. Look, you know, there are opportunities and there are challenges for human rights defenders and people who are promoting freedom around the world. In the time of COVID, you're seeing massive government overreach, uh, violations of civil liberties, the encroachment of the surveillance state. But at the same time, you're seeing governments fail and people realize they need to take more initiative on their own, on their own right? So you're seeing kind of a lot of like kind of localism, a lot of community powered movements. Uh, you're actually seeing a lot of democracy movements and kind of like pro-human rights, anti-corruption movements kind of sprouting out of countries that have leadership that's failing them uh, with regard to COVID, whether they're not doing anything or they're doing too much. So again, there's there's opportunities and there's challenges in the in the global world of human rights right now. Mm. Well, I, speaking of that, like, how did you get into human rights? I, I'm sure there's uh, you know a, a lot of p- paths that people take, but what what's your story? How did you get to be CSO? Sure. Well, if we go all the way back, I was very interested in engineering uh, as a student, and perhaps my career would have arced maybe more towards like something like yours had I followed that. Given that we both obviously were going to end up in Bitcoin anyway, right? So, uh, but you know, it's interesting. I went to college on an engineering track, and in that freshman year, which was uh, two thousand. Um, for at Tufts University in Boston, I had an option to take like an elective. And I took a political science class about the war on Iraq. And it was, of course, you know, I had just started, uh, you know, basically a little over a year before the course began. And the point of the course, it was a political science course. And the point was for us to understand why the war was happening, who launched it, what were their agendas, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And that kind of really intrigued me. And it made me realize that I wanted to have a career in international relations and trying to seek to understand what was happening with geopolitics and most importantly, to help people who were victims of abuse. Um, Obviously, I think it was, especially on like a liberal arts campus uh, like Tufts was at the time, it was widely viewed as a really bad idea to invade Iraq. And I think that that's been, uh, you know, it's even more clear by the day, right? Um, That that was a really bad idea. But at the time, it was um, it was pretty controversial. Like it was pretty split. Still, I would say um, people people kind of making um, arguments that it was it was the right thing to do. And the most dangerous type of argument was actually that it was the right thing to do from a humanitarian perspective. And that was one that I I even personally was you know of course sympathetic to at one point or another, where you had these humanitarian folks come and say, "Hey, look how bad Saddam is." look, he's, he's gassed his own people, um, which is all true, right? So it's that one's the most slippery, dangerous uh, sort of argument to go to war because it has that kernel of truth in it, right? It wasn't like the WMDs one, which we found out later was totally fabricated. It was real. Saddam was evil. He was one of the worst dictators, right? 
and he had been aggressive. He had tried to invade Kuwait and other things. So there was actually a really good humanitarian case if you were just you know doing a pure debate. Um, and we studied that, and we studied actually the fact that the war was actually kind of you know people like to pin it on the neocons, right? Whether it was Wolfowitz or Crystal, but in reality, it was it was obviously just as much pushed by traditional conservatives like Cheney. Rumsfeld, as it was by liberals. I mean, look at look at what, what happened and transpired with votes. I mean, Joe Biden was hugely important to this whole thing, as was Clinton, right? Both Clintons, of course, were, were at the beginning very sympathetic and the whole political establishment. So it actually gave us an opportunity to take a semester and actually look at the motives. And some people argue it was for oil and some people argue it was for, you know, the dollar hegemony, securing the dollar hegemony, you know, forcing people to pay uh, contracts in in dollars. Other people argue it was, it was more just as a pushback on uh, in a, a rising Iran uh, and install an American power base in an area that, that some thought that one day Russia and China would become more involved in. So there were a lot of different reasons, but ultimately that course uh, was very seminal for me and it made me understand that I wanted to spend my career in that area. And what happened next was I shifted my major to looking at international relations and Middle Eastern studies. I spent a year in London at the School of African, <clears throat> the School of Oriental and African Studies. And then I got very fortunate to get an internship at the Human Rights Foundation when it was just a little tiny startup of like five or six people in the summer of 2007. So that began my real exploration into the world of global freedom, because the stuff that they taught me at the Human Rights Foundation isn't really taught in schools. You don't really learn about dictatorship. You don't really learn about the fact that most people live under uh, an authoritarian regime. And I started to learn all of that. So my work at HRF, and now it's 2020, so you know, 13 years later, has really been a, a career in learning and, and in speaking to activists and dissidents from all these different countries and learning about their situation, which is often hidden from, our, from us because of the way that the journalistic and media world is built. People want to focus on a couple different narratives and there's really no room for, for certain narratives. Like if there's oil or terrorism involved, like, okay, people are interested, right? The news executives want to focus on that. But I started to learn about this whole swath of countries, dozens and dozens of countries around the world that didn't necessarily have oil or terrorism involved and that had, a, you know, a brutal dictatorship repressing the people. So my career has been very much understanding this, trying to figure out how we can help, and then ultimately realizing that technology was going to be a key tool for these people. And then finally, it fall, you know, everything falling into place with realizing that Bitcoin could potentially be the most powerful tool for these folks. Yeah, you're, you're, you sit at sort of this interesting nexus of uh, all of these people that are out in the field, um, you know, trying to gain awareness or fight oppressive regimes and so on. Why do those people get into human rights? Because, I mean, oftentimes it's, uh, you know, it's very dangerous. Um, you know, it's hard to get attention sometimes and hard to get funding. Why, why did they get in? Well, there's a common refrain that you'll hear from prominent dissidents that they didn't choose that career. It, it happened to them, right? Like either one of their parents was arrested or kidnapped um, or they lost their job because of their political beliefs. And they, they sort of unintentionally became a dissident. If you actually kind of interview all the world's top activists who maybe struggled, struggled against the Soviet Union or communist regimes in Eastern Europe or regimes anywhere, you know, pick them out, pick one out of a hat. 
and you talk to the dissidents who who were either very prominent in, in a previous struggle or are prominent today, more often than not, they'll tell you that this was not the career that they chose. You know, they, they wanted to become a, a geologist or an engineer or, you know, a software um, expert or someone who was a teacher or an educator. And then the sort of the dictatorship happened, right? And then that sort of bent their arc of what they did with their time. And they ultimately pursue what they do because they they think a better world is possible. And that's what really animates me. A lot of people are like, hey, don't you see all this terror and horror through your work? And isn't that so depressing? And while that's certainly true, what's most amazing is just the like tenacity of humans and like the human spirit and how indomitable it is. I mean, these people who are escaping from North Korea or Eritrea or struggling against an opponent as big as the Chinese Communist Party, for example, um, or the Saudis or the Russians, they still do it. You know, they put their life on the line and they seek truth and eventually they'll win. Um, But it it can be (laughs) like, obviously, as you've seen many, many decades before victory. Right. But as people say, you know, no empire lasts forever. Right. Wow. Yeah. Some, some of the stories that I hear from these guys, it's just, uh, it, it is kind of crazy that they're almost thrust upon this position, forced to carry the flag for, uh, for oppressed peoples and so on. And yeah, it's, it's crazy to me that, that there are so many around the world that continue to suffer. So along those lines, what, what are the biggest, um, sort of patterns that you see in human rights right now and what uh, like how what what are the things that people uh that cause people to become human rights activists so maybe it would be helpful to maybe maybe define some terms here um and this was very important to me when i started learning about human rights because oftentimes concepts get conflated by people who are in the human rights industry and it's definitely an industry right um there are billions and billions of dollars at play here. And I think it, it goes back to uh, the conflict between the United States and the Soviet Union uh, in the post-World War II era. And much like a lot of what was set in place financially or diplomatically uh, was born out of the years, you know, 1945 to 1950, the creation of the UN, um, the IMF, et cetera, et cetera, World Bank, um, you also saw the birth of uh, the modern human rights movement and it was fractured. And what essentially it was, was a debate between the United States, which was promoting um, a set of human rights that we would think of today as civil liberties, or we would call them negative rights. So these are things like free speech, freedom of assembly, freedom of uh, to have privacy, to not be tortured, um, to participate in your government, if you wish to have freedom of and from religion. And then these were set opposed to the goals and values promoted by the Soviet, by the totalitarian Soviet Union, which were what they called positive human rights. These were things the government gave to you, right? So these were things like housing, healthcare, food, uh, basic food, um, vacation, things like that. And the human rights movement actually was manifested into two main documents. You, you of course, have heard of the the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, but that's really kind of a conglomeration of two sets of values, the American and the Soviet values. And there are two documents. One is the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, 
which is the one that the Human Rights Foundation kind of is animated by, uh, the ICCPR. And then there's a similar document for economic and social rights, right? And that's the one that all the dictators promote. And this was the most edifying thing for me uh, in my first few years at the Human Rights Foundation was actually learning about this process, which is, of course, never talked about. And what I've concluded through all my work is that what economic and social rights really are, are normative descriptions of what a good society should be. I, I really do believe, and I think if you even look at Adam Smith and Hayek and folks like that, who are normally thought to be more sort of classic liberal, right? They also say that a good society should take care of its vulnerable, right? Of course, many different religions believe this as well. And I don't think that's incompatible with civil liberties. In fact, I think like the most prosperous free societies uh, will have a way to protect the vulnerable. And, and that's something that I've learned through all of my study and in my communications and, and talking to people around the world who, who live under different kinds of governments. Basically, what's essential is that the civil liberties, these, these negative human rights, freedom of speech, et cetera, they need to be the foundation, right? They need to be first and they can't be compromised. And then on top of that, you can build a really beautiful society. But if you, if, if you try to not have the negative ones and you try to skip just to the positive ones, and say, look, we're not going to have free speech or freedom of religion or freedom of assembly or privacy. Um, we're only going to have housing, the right to have housing and the right to have food and the right to have uh, a good, you know, like a 40 hour work week, which is very much what the Soviets wanted. And it's very much what the Chinese government promotes today and all dictatorships promote. The thing is, if you don't have the negative rights, if you don't have the freedoms, these things aren't verifiable. No one can check or push back and individuals don't have any power. So that was really edifying for me because you know what, in the end, a lot of people in the human rights space actually still adhere to this thing where they really believe that the social and economic rights are like, quote unquote, more important. And my argument to them would be the outcomes of what social and economic rights achieve or aspire to are what I believe in, but I don't think you can have those things without freedoms, without basic human freedoms. I think you build one first and then the second, you know, the economic and social stuff to me is like a second layer, but they aren't really human rights properly understood. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. What, why do you think it is that like when, when you focus so much on the positive rights as, as opposed to the negative rights that, <clears throat> that people, uh, you essentially end up in some sort of tyranny or do you, dictatorship or totalitarianism? Well, when you don't have these values like free expression, uh, independent media, uh, separation of powers, civil society, the right to create an organization, when you don't have all these like checks and balances against the central power, you know, absolute power corrupts absolutely. And even if you have a noble, well-meaning dictator uh, who, who sets out to achieve for his people uh, housing and, and food and a good, good work life and vacations and healthcare and all these things, um, the, ver the very fact that, that they don't allow the people to be involved and participate and uh, choose their own uh, priorities will, will actually undermine the, even, even the most noble dictator. So I'm not someone who believes in the benevolent dictator. I just don't, I don't have, there's not a lot of historical evidence for that. It really is true, this whole absolute power corrupts absolutely thing. One way or another, in the end, it's a bad system for humans. And I really believe that humans do thrive under this like more decentralized political system where there are checks and balances, where there's sort of civilian oversight over the military, where there's 
uh, independent media where there, where you can create a, a club that the government doesn't control, whether it's a stamp collecting club or a sports team. And these are all things that are so important. And you learn about them when you, when you actually interview activists and dissidents around the world. And you learn about how important civil society is. And you understand how much of a bedrock uh, these negative rights are. And that's why I think the United States has been so successful where it's been successful because of the Bill of Rights, which essentially is, you know, a bunch of negative rights that are outlined to protect the individual against the state, right? And that's why I think where the U.S. has been successful, and of course we can we can we can criticize the U.S., but where it's been successful is because of these negative rights, right? They've created an environment where people can thrive. Okay, so so that's kind of um, the backstory, I think, conceptually and theoretically and philosophically behind. The human rights world, which uh, which was really interesting for me to learn about, you know. Yeah, it sounds like there's a there's almost like an internal conflict among human rights activists themselves uh, in in trying to figure out what comes first and how how to do things. How how do you uh, manage that, and where, where do you uh, like how do you convince people of that, especially if they're human rights activists? Yeah, I mean, to to me, it's fairly intuitive, like. All I would be fighting for is for your right to debate what kind of healthcare system your country should have, okay? Or to debate how much the government should be involved in education or religion, for example. Once you are free to have that debate, okay? And once you can, for example, elect representatives uh, who can act on your behalf, write op-eds in the media, sue your government, you know, create businesses that can achieve change, create watchdog groups, nonprofits that can achieve change and unite people. Once you can do all these things, you know, then, then, you know, a society can kind of freely and fairly figure out its future. Um, and there, there may be uh, societies of people that decide that they want, you know, more government oversight in one area or another. And you know what, that, that would be fine from my perspective. The, the point is that most, so many people in the world, billions of people, 4.3 billion people who live under an authoritarian regime, they don't get, they don't have an option. They, they aren't involved in the decision-making process. And I really think they should be. Yeah. It sounds like there's a, the, the critical thing there is having some level of autonomy or the ability to make a choice, uh, that, that really is at the basis of what human rights is all about. Yeah. And, and they, it tends to build in a certain direction. Like when you have freedoms, and open societies, and you have academic freedom, like where, where scholars can challenge the establishment of thinking. And when you have actual investigative gritty journalism, and you have exposés of those in power, society tends to move in a good direction. Like all of these things happen in South Korea, they happen in Norway, they happen in, you know, in relative terms in places like Chile, and places like Costa Rica, and places like in Africa, for example, Namibia or Ghana. Um, and they're starting to happen more and more in Tunisia, for example, in the Middle East. Um, they happen in certain areas in Indonesia, for example. Um, and they don't happen in dictatorships, right? They don't happen in North Korea. They don't happen in Cuba. They don't happen in Venezuela. They don't happen in Russia, Belarus, etc. So these forces, which kind of like demand a better society or kind of the whole moral arc of history thing, which kind of like force people uh, to be more responsible with power, they naturally start to unfold and happen in open societies that have this sort of decentralized governance mechanism. And that's ultimately the, the main lesson that I've learned is that through all this is that 
poli- you know, a, a decentralized political mechanism is, is really good for humans. Yeah, that, that points to something that our listeners would, uh, would appreciate. You, you are talking about decentralization. And one of the things that's a little bit, how, does, how did you get into Bitcoin of all things? Because human rights and Bitcoin just seem so far apart. And here you are like one of the biggest proponents of Bitcoin. Yeah, so I think there's two, two angles there that I'll, uh, that I'll hit. I mean, for me, again, I've come into Bitcoin entirely from the human rights space. And when I, when I say human rights space, I mean someone who's working internationally on civil liberties and negative rights and helping people who live under authoritarian societies. And in my work, uh, we, at the, from the very beginning, I mean, we focused on technology. Like my first project at the Human Rights Foundation was um, putting together backpacks of forbidden materials uh, and movies and books dubbed into Spanish, subtitled into Spanish and sent into Cuba. My colleagues who were Latin American could, could easily, they didn't have a travel restriction. Um, HRF is a very international organization. So some of my colleagues were um, Colombian, Mexican, Argentine, et cetera. So they could just go to Mexico and then go into Cuba, no problem in 2007, eight, nine. And they, they would bring with them these backpacks, which had inside of them these sort of illicit materials. And they'd give them to Cubans who ran what was called an underground library system inside Cuba. And you would sit with three or four other people inside your home. You would play on a portable DVD player, V for Vendetta dubbed into Spanish. Okay, you know, and imagine how powerful like a film like that would be. And I thought that was an especially good film because, you know, on its face, it's obviously at the time, it was a criticism of sort of like the whole like George Bush, Tony Blair kind of Iraq war kind of, you know, that, that's kind of uh, to me how directors kind of the direction they were going. But if you actually sit in Havana and Cuba and you watch this thing, you realize it's obviously a parable for all, for all authoritarianism and tyranny, you know? So we would send in Braveheart, um, of course, lots of Latin American films and books as well. Um, Orwell and the Animal Farm was, was a very popular one. And people would sit and they'd watch this stuff, which, which this was before they had sort of access to the internet in an easy way. And they would like sit together in three, four groups of three, four people and watch it and reflect. And we had little courses they would take. And um, this was super powerful. And we saw how important it was that now on a flash drive, you could put thousands of books or hundreds of hours of movies, right? Whereas before uh, to smuggle books into communist or countries or dictatorships, like you would need trucks and it was much more dangerous, right? So we saw how technology was very empowering in this way. And that carried through to our work with North Koreans, where we ended up working with them to smuggle all kinds of different information and books and films in, into North Korea. So from the very beginning, I, I realized technology was going to be very important. We also saw how it could be very dangerous, right? So especially in 20, so 2016, 17, 18, we started to realize the technological angle of the Chinese Communist Party, um, what they were doing with surveillance and, and trying to build something along the lines of social credit or citizen score and trying to sort of establish a real-time censorship machine in 2020 over the last few years, create a, a sort of a dark tech laboratory in Xinjiang where they experiment on the Muslim minority population with all kinds of different technology. And then whatever's useful or successful for them, they then roll out across the rest of China and now across the rest of the world through companies like Huawei and ZTA and stuff. So we started studying that. And, and to me, it was very clear that yes, all technologies agnostic, kind of, I understand that. But some technologies, uh, I believe, are, are kind of architected differently. Like, I really believe that, like, peer-to-peer encryption, for example, 
uh, or Bitcoin are actually quite anti-authoritarian in, in the way that they, they, they operate. Whereas artificial intelligence or big data analysis is, is very authoritarian. Um, AI, you know, is going to help organizations or governments or corporations that have huge amounts of data. Like for AI to be useful, you kind of need to have a lot of data, right? So that was, that's become clear to me. Whereas stuff like, you know, whether it's encrypted messaging or Bitcoin really helps the individual. It, it's not to say a dictator can't find uh, the app signal helpful, um, but that's not, that would be missing the forest for the trees. The real point is that all of his people can now communicate privately, right? Um, and it's not to say that like individuals can't use AI in some, you know, clever way, but in reality, it's probably gonna benefit the powers that be the most. So we kind of saw this unfolding pretty early on, I would say. And by 2013, we had started to train activists to encrypt their communications. So we had a pretty robust digital security program where we'd work with um, companies and also groups like the EFF uh, to help activists living under dictatorships and authoritarian regimes be safer online. And actually, it was within that context that I was contacted first in 2013 by a guy named Edan. Idan Iago, I still remember. And he wrote, I actually met him at, a, at an event in California that summer. And he, he wrote me this email, which is the first time that the word Bitcoin appears in my email inbox, um, which is, which is it's always funny to, it's a funny exercise to do if you actually go back and do it for yourself. And he was like, hey, could we use Bitcoin to fund Ukrainian democracy activists? So this was in the months preceding what would later become known as uh, the sort of Maidan Square revolution in Ukraine, which was in early 2014, right? Um, so this was in the month leading up to that. And he was like, hey, I know all these Ukrainians. Situation's really turning for the worse there. Is there a way we could get the money outside of the financial system? And he was proposing Bitcoin. And we had some chats about it, but it didn't really move the needle for me. Let's just put it this way. The penny didn't really drop for me. The next year I read the, um, as probably many of folks listening did, uh, read the New York Times piece by Mark Anderson on Bitcoin, which was till this to this day, if you actually just read it, it's, it's really good. Um, it's short and it's powerful. I don't know why he's dropped off the Bitcoin map. It's weird to me. It's unclear. But he obviously knew, he obviously sort of got it then. There was also, he did a Freakonomics episode that year, which was pretty good. So my level of interest increased. And that year we started accepting donations at Ahrefs and Bitcoin in the fall of 2014. And of course, at the time we were kind of like, you know, some of our donors were like, can we, can we give him Bitcoin? And we were like, okay, whatever. So we set up like an early Coinbase account and we, we, let's put it this way. We weren't super excited about it. We were like, okay, fine. We'll, we'll take your big, we'll, we'll take your Bitcoin for conference tickets or whatever. Right. Uh, mercifully, thankfully we decided to just hold on to it, you know, and kind of forget about it almost, but we were, we were accepting Bitcoin donations at that point. So HR, most people at HRF look very fondly upon Bitcoin, but it wasn't really until a couple of years later that the penny really started to drop for me. A friend of mine uh, in the about September 2016, he he was like, "Hey, I'm on the board of uh, Bitfury, uh, Bitcoin mining company. Like, do you you know we have? Is there any interest in human rights folks of meeting big people in the Bitcoin space and talking to them?" And uh, I was like, "Sure, let's do it." So we did the first workshop a few months later, where we had actual human rights activists from around the world with with a couple couple Bitcoiners. And um, it kind of grew from there. And then throughout the spring of 2017, summer of 2017, then obviously things got crazy with the price and my interest ballooned from there. And of course it was like, you know, a full year of me watching 
videos of you and Andreas, you know, talking about all these different concepts, right? Basically, and realizing how deep the rabbit hole went, right? You know, it took so many hours of time to actually start to grasp it. But by 2018, it, you know, it was pretty clear to me that there, this was a hugely important tool for human rights. And that's when we started to be more aggressive, I think, about incorporating uh, this angle into our work. And in the last couple of years, we've done everything from uh, digital security workshops for activists from like a dozen different countries to help them understand how to use Bitcoin safely and as privately as possible to, you know, short videos that explain the relevance of, of Bitcoin human rights online to, you know, publishing and speaking about the topic around the world to, of course, participating in the Little Bitcoin Book Project and just doing whatever I can to share the power of Bitcoin with, with human rights activists. Because ultimately, this is in, in, in this era, I believe Bitcoin is going to be something that has many different eras in it, right? But this era right now, this is where if you're a human rights group or a journalist uh, outfit and you're under and you're at risk, this is where you're really going to want to learn about this thing. Like it could really help you right now, materially, like immediately. So that's kind of the arc. And what are some of those ways? Well, right. The first one, of course, is if, if you're most human rights activists have money problems and we've actually interviewed them about these things. And, and there's different kinds of money problems. One, of course, is this, they never have enough money, right? problem most people have um but they're, they're not you know most of the activists themselves are not particularly good at fundraising and they sort of struggle with that and they want to do their work you know they want to build their movements and recruit uh supporters and 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 get out in the street or change policy in whatever the way they're, they're going to do so they don't you know raising money is always hard for them but they often do have international folks that want to give to their cause and that's hard like if you're in russia uh, or in Hong Kong, or in Thailand, or in Algeria, or Saudi Arabia, or, you know, God forbid, Syria, Venezuela. I mean, if you're in any one of these places, it's not so easy for a donor to just like make a wire or donate online to your cause. Like either the U.S. government will flag and stop the payment um, or the local government will know that you're getting foreign donations and they'll shut your bank account down. Right. So this was really made clear to me. And it's, it's not something you actually understand until you understand Bitcoin. Like I, like previous to my understanding of Bitcoin, I, I, I knew that it was kind of hard to get money to these folks. But until you know there's a solution, you don't think about it very much. You're just like, oh, that's the way things are, you know. But once you realize that, oh, my God, these people could just set up like a BTC pay server instance on their website and I could just donate to them and then they could go cash out at a peer to peer marketplace or at a Bitcoin ATM. Then you're like, wow, OK, this this could actually help today, right now. So that's what we, we want to seek to do is, is just, you know, impart this information as much as possible to folks and they can make their own decisions about whether or not they want to use it. But certainly it is an important arrow in the quiver for these people. Again, they have money problems. They, they can't really get donations so easily. They don't have control over their finances. And I thought something that was really interesting that came out last week was a, a profile that Coindesk did on, on some Russian human rights activists. And one of them actually said, you know, what's really interesting is that just the fact that Bitcoin exists makes it harder for the government to repress our traditional fiat bank accounts because they know that if they do that, we'll just use Bitcoin. So they're like disincentivized from doing traditional financial repression simply because they know Bitcoin exists. And that was a, that was a very interesting kind of game theoretical thing that I didn't think about. But obviously that's that's now a thing. 
So if a government is going to go ahead and shut your bank account down, moving forward into 2021, 22, 23, they are going to have to know that you can just use Bitcoin, right? So it's this really cool kind of protective mechanism for people. Yeah, because the government would rather be able to observe your transactions in the traditional bank. Yes, they, yeah, exactly. So in the Russian case, what they're saying is, yeah, they're basically letting us use our bank accounts and you know, we're doing our thing because they know if, if, if they shut it down, we'll just do it in a way that they have a harder time understanding and, and a harder time controlling. So I thought that was really neat and you're going to see that more. But the big, the big lesson here is that Bitcoin has not happened yet for the international human rights community. It is, un, it is not understood. It is not known. It is not implemented. It is not used aside from a handful of cases. There are certainly journalists out there. Like you can donate to the Hong Kong Free Press, a wonderful uh, civic journalism outfit there doing important work to challenge the CCP. You can donate to them via BTC Pay server. I mean, it's great. But that's an exception. Most human rights activists haven't grasped this yet. And I'm really excited to do whatever I can to accelerate their understanding of Bitcoin. And that's that's kind of my main mission in life right now. And what would uh, additional sources of funding do for these groups uh, that are you know, trying to rally in these uh, oppressed places? Yeah, I mean, you might... You, as a listener, may think of human rights and think about some massive, you know, Goliath organization like Amnesty International or Human Rights Watch or something like that with their $100 million budget, right? You know, HRF's annual budget's around $10 million, but there are these organizations out there that are $100 million organizations, right? They, they bring in $70, $80 million a year or something like that. Once you get that big, there's obviously, as you all know, there's a lot of bureaucratic waste. Um, there's a lot of paperwork. There's a lot of intermediaries. So we think it's most effective rather than, you know, give money to huge groups. We think it's most effective to give money to folks on the ground directly, right? It's a similar strategy to like organizations like Give Directly that are trying to change charity so that instead of giving to the Red Cross, you're giving to like the individual farmer or entrepreneur, right? Um, I would imagine your listeners would be sympathetic to this idea. So uh, it's sort of like Bitcoin and that it cuts out the middleman, right? And at the end of the day, these for these organizations, $5,000 can make a huge difference. Like if you're, we supported this guy in Gabon, which is a country in West Africa where the dictator rules as if the whole country is his personal fiefdom. And he's working with the Chinese to cut down all the rainforests and, and, and sell, you know, basically sell all the wood to the Chinese against the wishes of the people who would prefer that the rainforest not be cut down, right? So democratically, that's what they want, but because the dictator has absolute power, he can do whatever he wants. He's working to cut down all the rainforests and kill all the wildlife in conjunction with the Chinese, right? And this is a phenomenon you'll see all across Southern Asia, Latin America, Africa, uh, dictatorial regimes working with the Chinese government to just like basically strip clear rainforest, happens in Bolivia, Burma, etc. But in this particular case in Gabon, there's a guy who's a polio victim. I mean, he's in a wheelchair and yet he's able to like, run this very annoying for the government, uh, you know, environmentalist group that is trying to prevent, to have transparency in what the government is doing. They're calling for like transparency, openness. They want the government to tell the people what's happening. And for this guy, I mean, you're talking about a, a country where, you know, kids in schools are, the, the, the schools are like tents with dirt floors. Okay. And you know, there's not a whole lot of electricity and not a lot of equipment. So $5,000 goes so far for someone like him. Do you know what I mean? Especially in local currency and what local goods cost. Um, that's an extreme example, but 
for many of these organizations, a five to 10 to 20K gift is a game changer for them, right? Therefore, the Bitcoin community is going to realize over the next couple of years how much power they have because, you know, they'll, they'll be able to make these, you know, for them, relatively small gifts that may make a huge difference for others. And I want to make it possible so that the infrastructure exists for any of these organizations, whatever floats your boat, you know, whatever you're whatever you want to do to irritate absolute power, however you want to push back against tyranny. I want to make sure that you can do it in a way that you can use Bitcoin to, to do that. And right now that's not really possible. And again, it doesn't matter what your cause is. I, of course, focus on helping people under authoritarian regimes, but that doesn't mean I don't think democracies uh, don't do bad things. So I, of course, want you to be able to support uh, civil liberties groups inside the US and the UK and Germany and Japan too. Um, and, and they are also ignorant about Bitcoin by and large, you know what I mean? So we're, we're, we're not there yet with the global human rights movement in Bitcoin, but I think we can accelerate the process. And it would really be a shame if we couldn't move it to where it needs to be before the governments, you know, get a full understanding of it. Like the, the gov governments are so arrogant and the establishment is so arrogant and so dismissive of Bitcoin that like now's the time. If we wait five to 10 years, it'll be too late. Yeah, it, it's interesting what you're saying, because it, it, like the whole field of human rights is often about like winning the hearts and minds of, uh, of those that are around them. And a little money just goes such a long way towards making that happen and, you know, creating just that enough momentum to actually change things. But re with regard to that, like how... When I see something like the Uyghur minority in China, how 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 does activism actually help them? Because I mean, we're we're seeing all sorts of atrocities uh, like going on in China. How how does donating or uh, being able to give money to an organization uh, to human rights activists there help? Yeah, there's there's different kinds of activism, and I will I appreciate and understand. You know, most Bitcoiners, you know, a lot of them say, you know, they don't believe in protests. That's why they're working on Bitcoin. I would encourage them to consider that both things work. Um, I really do believe Bitcoin is like sort of the most potentially the most powerful tool for human rights. And we can get into that. But don't sleep on protest and traditional advocacy and campaigning. We can talk about the Uyghur case. The Uyghur case is actually very specific because it's such a surveilled, controlled society. I would say that it's, it's even harder to have a technological impact there than in North Korea. In North Korea, the government is pretty inept and very corrupt, and, and we, can, we can smuggle information in through the Chinese border, through markets, and people can buy and sell USB keys and learn about the outside world, and inevitably, you know, they'll be starting to on-ramp onto Bitcoin as opposed to the uh, fiat currency uh, there. They've already started to use dollars and RMB. Uh, I have no doubt that they'll start to use Bitcoin at some point. Um, Xinjiang is, is very different because the, the CCP has such an ironclad technological surveillance state grip on everybody. Um, you know, you can't, there's nothing you can do with your phone that like the government doesn't know about. So it's a very unique case where like, I don't even, and there aren't many cases like this. This is a super unique case, but there aren't many things that technology can do to help the Uyghurs. Um, however, what can help the Uyghurs is, is sort of traditional human rights activism. So for example, um, what does help the Uyghurs is if the CCP cannot punish them freely without any implications, right? Which is what they were doing for several years. So what human rights activists can do, and there's a guy named Bill Browder who does an amazing job of, of this, 
is implement something called smart sanctions. And I want to be very clear, I oppose traditional countrywide sanctions. I think they're unfair and unjust, and they end up hurting the, the poorest people the most. However, smart sanctions are awesome. What the smart sanctions are is a country or a economic region, let's say the EU or the US, a desirable one. Let's just let's just use those three, maybe plus Japan. They would come together and say, look, these 26 Chinese CCP officials have been directly involved in creating concentration camps. Um, or these officials murdered this journalist in Russia, or these officials did X in this country. And what they can do is they can prevent that person from openly having uh, bank accounts in the United States, from buying property in the United States, from sending their kids to Harvard, from buying property on the French coastline, from going shopping in, in Beverly Hills. They, they can take these things away from those human rights violators. And that actually really hits them where it hurts. Um, because why do you become an oligarch or a dictator? To do those things. I mean, so that you can go to Beverly Hills and own a freaking mansion in Malibu. That's why you become a dictator, Right. So when you take, and all, it's different from the, the Cold War era. In the Cold War era, the Soviets had really good schools. These dictators, they don't, they don't have really good schools. There's a reason why Kim Jong-un goes to school in Switzerland and Bashar al-Assad goes to Sandhurst and all these people. They want, the, they want to have their cake and eat it too. They want, to, they want to raise their kids in the West with all the trappings of freedom, but then go home and repress everybody. They want to have it both ways. And what smart sanctions try to do is take that ability away from them, right? So... What human rights activists have been able to do through storytelling and protesting and pushing and lobbying and doing all these things that are that are hard work, yeoman's work, really. They've been able to get, as of last week, a handful of CCP officials uh, on what's called a Magnitsky list, which means they, they again, they can't travel to the United States. Um, they can't, you know, easily invest in our companies, things like that. Um, and that's really powerful, I would say. So the more of that that can be done, it's just, you know, the less incentive you have to repress these people um, if they're actual costs. So I would say the goal of like a lot of human rights advocacy um, today is, is to try and make sure to impose costs on bad behavior by dictators. Um, and, and, and that is separate and parallel to the activism we might do in the software world with regard to Bitcoin, right? I mean, I think there's, there's many different ways to pursue freedom. Um, but don't don't sleep on or discount how important traditional advocacy can be. Yeah, it's interesting because you you mentioned how the Chinese uh, Communist Party they they are on they they've locked down the country in terms of technology, um, and you mentioned earlier that now is the time to act because ten twenty years from now a lot of other dictators are going to kind of be doing the same thing. Do you think it'll take? 10, 20 years, like it, 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 if China is doing it now, I mean, can't be that far behind to have like a regime in Myanmar doing the same thing. You know, it looks like China sort of overplayed their hand. Um, and there's a couple different factors here, but as you've seen, obviously economically, uh, the, the reason why they tried to cover up COVID in the first place is they didn't want an economic recession. Um, Xi Jinping wanted a strong financial year. When you're a dictator, you don't, you're not in place with, because of elections. You're not like, um, you're not making decisions based on what the people will, will like necessarily. You're just trying to sort of survive, right? So if there is a big recession, it really hurts them. It really hurts their ability to control people. So that's one of the reasons why they tried to cover up COVID in the first place, right? But it happened, and regardless, what they failed, they they didn't cover it up and ended up 
turning into a global uh, global pandemic that regardless of whether you think governments did the right thing or not in, in whatever direction has obviously had massive economic implications. And we need to look behind the, the sort of V-shaped stock market recovery in the United States and look at what's actually happening in countries like China. Like they have record amount of unemployment, even that they'll tell us about. Like we don't know what the real numbers are. Um, we can even, we, you can even see from outer space, like, you know, the, the reduction of production of, of things, uh, of industry. And that's not good for them. So there's economic stress in China. And then there's sort of diplomatic stress uh, the brutal subjugation of Hong Kong has not been a good look for them internationally. It was probably overplaying their hand. Xi Jinping is very aggressive, right? And th- there's a couple other things that are happening where, you know, it's not clear whether they're going to like have the 21st century as a Chinese century, as people once thought, right? Like they thought they could kind of like install Huawei and ZTE 5G networks all around the world, all of which serve as surveillance tech for their own government because they have this national security law where any data that passes through companies like Huawei or ZTE or whatever can be, you know, copied and sent back to Beijing. So that's, that's like what we feared, but it's seemingly taking, uh, this idea is taking a beating. We had this, again, we had this kind of dystopic vision that not only would China own all the world's 5G networks, but they'd also maybe be able to implement the world's, um, uh, new currency and maybe even best the dollar. That was like the worst case scenario, right? For people who understand what's happening in Xinjiang and they don't want that to happen elsewhere. Well, as of mid-July 2020, 5G's taken a huge hit. Uh, Britain, which had agreed to, you know, which had started to install all this stuff from the Chinese government in its country, now is getting rid of it. Um, countries in Europe are turning away. Countries even in, even in Asia, Singapore is turning away. So people are turning away from Chinese 5G and telecoms, which is really bad for the CCP. And in addition, their economic play isn't really working. I mean, a lot of people are like, oh, my God, how scary, you know, if if the RMB took over. I mean, what, like two to three percent of all transactions are settled in RMB and like two to three percent of reserves are held in RMB. I mean, it's not it's not a desirable currency. Nobody believes in it. So I would say that the the sort of the, the Chinese century is very much in question right now, which is not something I would have said a year ago. So it, things are changing, I think, in a positive direction if, if you don't want what's happening in Xinjiang to spread across the world. So again, in, in hearing what I just said, maybe you can spot a whole bunch of different ways to get involved. I mean, there are, there are lots of economic ways to, to challenge the Chinese government as well. Um, you know, we believe in nonviolence and there's so many different things you can do, um, whether it's boycott goods made in Xinjiang. We just learned the other day, unfortunately, that a huge percentage of PPP whether it be masks, gowns, et cetera, are made by slave labor, slave labor in Xinjiang. So yeah, this is a huge New York Times story that came out two days ago. So what's helpful is like, we can actually investigate that. And then now we can, we can look at, okay, which companies are doing it. And then we can ask in, in the United States, we can ask companies to don't, you know, don't buy that stuff. You know, we can actually do this. This is part of traditional human rights advocacy. For example, what happened with regard to South Africa and apartheid. Like there are international coordinated efforts we can do to stop companies from using labor in Xinjiang. It can, it can happen. It's happened before. So I, I certainly want to continue my work in this area alongside what I'm doing uh, with Bitcoin. I mean, one day Bitcoin is going to be an amazing tool for the Uyghurs because the Chinese Communist Party can't stop them from using it. But right now, given that, I mean, it would be a real stretch to, to say that, that that Bitcoin could really help anyone in, in, in that part of China because those people don't have control over their bank accounts. Everything is monitored. 
They can't, there are checkpoints every city block in some of these cities where the police look at your phone and they take it apart. That's a place where I think Bitcoin's potential will come in the future. But right now, those people need traditional human rights advocacy. They need people in the West and the free world to stand up and help them. Uh, and hopefully we'll see more of that, you know? Hmm. Well, uh, so you recently started funding Bitcoin development and specifically you focused on privacy or I think it was coin swaps. Why, why is privacy such an important issue for you? Yeah, again, it goes back to the lessons I'm learning from activists around the world. Uh, again, they uh, we just saw the other day that in Hong Kong, your bank account is at risk of being shut down if the government knows that you're involved in some sort of like pro-democracy work, right? Um, and you're going to see this not just in Hong Kong, not just in dictatorships. You're going to see this in, you look at Operation Chokepoint, like, like you've already seen it in America. You'll see it across Europe. Your financial access to the legacy system is going to be increasingly contingent upon being good, okay, by being uh, submissive and patriotic, right? And that may be more exaggerated in China, uh, where, where the government, you know, is aspiring to have the citizen score system, where it's like your credit score plus your social media and, and what you're saying to your family and friends and, and your habits and behaviors um, dictate your financial abilities. Um, but it'll also be the case in America too, and in all free societies. So all over the world, it is going to become increasingly important for people to have financial privacy. And I think all the more so because of the moment that we're in. I think financial privacy will, has always been important, but up until now, most people have, you know, or until recently, at least most people have had cash as an option for certain things. Like if they wanted to buy a book that was considered controversial or they wanted to do something the government didn't want to, didn't want them to do, you know, they, they could have used cash and preserved privacy, but that's disappearing, right? So just to give you some numbers as of 2018, mm -hmm. so obviously these numbers have continued to drop, but uh, you know, less than half of all transactions in Britain are done uh, with cash, less than 40% in the United States, less than 20% in Sweden, about 10% in South Korea. So uh, depending on what country or city you're in, cash can, you know, in certain places today is pretty much gone, you know, for different reasons. And cash continues to dwindle. I understand the US government continues to print more cash and that people are saving right now. But in terms of like, how you spend your money, and how you de-anonymize yourself, like how you conduct your day, you more than ever before do it with digital transactions that have trusted third parties. And these people and institutions reveal what you do with them to others. There are data markets and there are governments and other authorities and corporations that wanna buy your data so they can understand you. Whether it's so they can sell you crap or control you, it doesn't really matter to me. I think surveillance capitalism and Big Brother are both a threat. But in general, like the obvious trend is that children being born today, like won't use paper money in their daily life. So everything will be done digitally. And what that means is that, you know, if Bitcoin didn't exist, they'd have no hope really. Like every transaction they'd make would be controlled by some corporation or government mm. and would be freezable, censorable, easily surveillable, all these different things. So Bitcoin gives us a way out. I think it matters for everybody, but I think there's like a time scale. Like it matters right now immediately for people living under a dictatorship. Like right now, today, it matters for people in societies that are crumbling, that face high inflation, hyperinflation, all these different things. Like if you live in Lebanon, Bitcoin is like a real thing that you're going to want to learn about, right? If you live in Iran, it's a real thing that you're going to want to learn about. If you live in Germany or California, 
you still should learn about it. But I would say, you know, geopolitically, it's not as pressing. So um, for the people that I'm in touch with, Bitcoin is so, so important. Like, again, for financial privacy's sake, there's a woman I know, she's a human rights activist in Nicaragua. And Daniel Ortega, the dictator there, took her bank account away several years ago. So she can no longer bank based on her political activism. Okay. So I learned about this when I was interviewing her. Um, she's one of our Freedom Fellows, uh, a program we run at the Human Rights Foundation. And she basically had to like go to Costa Rica and open a bank account there to do anything. It's flustering her work and basically making it really difficult to do anything. And governments can, can do this and they will do this to you in the future if they don't like you, right? Well, guess what? When we told her about Bitcoin and that she could be in Nicaragua and just receive the Bitcoin on her phone and the government could stop it. And we showed her that there are like peer-to-peer -peer marketplaces there where she could like cash out in local currency uh, and buy stuff. Like she was thrilled, you know? Now she's going to need a lot of education to make sure she does it the right way. But really Bitcoin does provide this parallel financial system that is so, so important for people who live under repressive governments. Yeah, I, I, I had a like a little moment the other day when I was like uh, just looking through my orders on Amazon. And I was like, man, Amazon knows a lot about me. If, <laughs> yeah, dude. if this data fell into the wrong hands or to people that didn't like me or something like that, th this could be really, really bad. And it, it, it sounds to me like, you know, I mean, Amazon isn't that evil and the U.S. government, relatively speaking, isn't that evil. But like, sounds like in other countries, this is data that can and does get used against you. Yeah. And again, whether it's American companies selling your data to governments, uh, if you live in somewhere else, um, or whether it's, you know, you're concerned about the U.S. government, or the Chinese government, or whoever you're concerned about, it's not great that when you, you when you talk to your friend and you have your phone in your pocket, that you get advertisements targeted on the con the topic of your conversation. Like that's not especially great. And I'm not saying Bitcoin fixes that at all. But what it does do again is it allows us to make payments and move money around in a way that's censorship resistant and confiscation resistant and permissionless, whereby like no authority can stop you from doing it. And, you know, the reason why privacy is so important is that, look, without Bitcoin privacy, its um, usefulness is somewhat limited, somewhat limited. Like, like in a democracy where, like, you might have a chance that an organization like Coin Center could rally support and try to convince the U.S. government to not, to not sort of prosecute people or to, like, have reg relatively a deregulated Bitcoin space. You could imagine that. I mean, maybe you'd think it's unlikely, but it's possible because we could lobby, people could campaign, there could be active, we could be, go protest. You know, let's say in 20 years, everybody's using Bitcoin. The US government decides to like apply some huge regulation to it in some way, tax it in some undue way. We could protest. And like, again, I think they'd still win, but like, you have to admit there's a possibility that in a democratic society, we could push back and get what we want as people. That if you live in a dictatorship, you have no hope, right? There's nothing. So it's actually really important that people have an ability to use Bitcoin privately, um, because then again, the government doesn't necessarily know what you're doing. And that may be the only way that you can buy that book that's banned or make a payment to your colleague who's helping you with your website or you're promoting free information inside a dictatorship or, you know, the only way you can accept a donation from a foreign donor. So uh, privacy in Bitcoin is so, so important. I wouldn't say that Bitcoin would fail necessarily without privacy, but it's pretty close. Like if there's no privacy in Bitcoin in 20 years, like 
it would be pretty close to a failed project in my eyes. Like there has to be privacy. And the good news is there's so much amazing work happening right now in this area. Uh, I mean, Bitcoin is about to, I know the big debate right now is, you know, when, but about to, you know, undergo a software upgrade, which will, which will make it possible to have even more privacy, um, which is pretty exciting and give, give programmers and coders, you know, even more tools at their disposal. But when you look at things like CoinSwap and PayJoin, and you look at, even though they're older ideas, I know, I know that they were first uh, formulated uh, seven, eight years ago, the fact that people are now trying to implement them and the fact that we could live in a world potentially in a year or two where any open source Bitcoin wallet could, could have a, you know, a coin swap option in it is pretty freaking cool. And it's really cool for me to see stuff like, like I have this Android phone and I'm, I'm using the Samurai, you know, mobile app on the Android itself. You can just download the Samurai wallet and you can start doing coin join is really cool. Um, and I, it's buggy. It's not quite yet, there yet, but I'm pretty sure in two years it'll be there. You know, like it, it, it's pretty exciting. And these are really important tools for activists. Really, really important. Three questions to sort of wrap up because I, I know we've been going for almost an hour already. You, you mentioned privacy. Are there any other long-term goals that you have for Bitcoin? Yeah, I think, again, I think I've laid out why privacy I feel like needs to be prioritized for us, especially because I think that there are quite a few Bitcoiners, maybe not Bitcoiners, but people in Bitcoin that will sacrifice privacy happily if they can just get more number go up. Lots of holders of Bitcoin, big corporate holders of Bitcoin, or maybe people who have GBTC or whatever, and they will oppose privacy upgrades to Bitcoin. And, and I don't think they'll have any ability to stop it, which is why Bitcoin is so awesome. But they will, they will, they, they don't want more privacy in Bitcoin because it makes it less regulatable and compliant, right? Um, and that means they'll, that maybe they make less money. And I think you'll see this as a huge conflict over the next couple of years in Bitcoin. People between between people who want Bitcoin to be more traceable and more compliant and more more regulatory, so they can make more money, um, versus like people who realize Bitcoin is this really powerful tool for human freedom and that it needs to be private uh, and permissionless as possible. Um, so that's again why the privacy piece is so key. But I'd say also access. Uh, so it is obviously. Uh, a little hard to, for the average person to like, you know, set up a full node and interact with it. I think there's a lot of work that can be done there. So some of the development fund in the, in the future, some of the things we'll be supporting is like making it easier for people to both run full nodes and also interact with their full nodes from their phones. That I think is a really interesting area. That's important. There's also access when it comes to infrastructure. So, you know, there's obviously huge caveats when it comes to like SPV wallets, but there are, you know, people working on a similar idea that would be more privacy protecting that would allow you to use Bitcoin in like a super low bandwidth area, right? So like I'd say access and infrastructure and then also just resilience, like just making it possible for in this age where like the Bitcoin blockchain is continually growing, like making it possible for people to run full nodes at home, you know, strengthening, you know, what full nodes do, things like that. Th these will be very important. So I would say kind of like that maybe if it's a, a trinity, it would be privacy, access, and uh, and resilience. Yeah, that's, uh, it, it is interesting because uh, I've been thinking a lot more recently about the Lightning Network and using that as sort of the backbone for a lot of things that would absolutely be fantastic for a lot of human rights people. Because 
uh, instead of using a trusted third party, you you route through the Lightning Network and it's end-to-end encrypted for everything, uh, which would be kind of amazing, uh, like having no trusted third party. Yeah, so look, if I could give to every... And this could happen in like 18 months, 24 months. If, if every single activist who goes to the Oslo Freedom Forum, which is an event that you've been to, which I encourage anyone to check out um, at oslofreedomforum.com, obviously COVID has put a hamper on our plans, but we'll try to be back next May with a big event in Norway. But if, if out of the hundreds of activists from around the world that come to this thing every year, we could, we could, we could show them how to use a open source free, you know, KYC less uh, or no KYC wallet, which ran tour automatically and allowed you to use lightning to make payments. I mean, what a freaking amazing tool that would be, you know? Well, not, not just payments, but communication with all, all, all of their field. Ops. Exactly. And, how, and to just do all this, not in a non-custodial way would be so huge. And that's, it's not, not where we are yet, but um, that would be, that would be really big. I mean, lightning is, is such a fascinating topic for me. I, I've long thought that it's been, it's a super powerful area uh, for human rights. And look, even like halfway solutions, I think are helpful. I mean, if we look at two briefly, would one would be the strike thing that Jack Mollers is working on. And another one would be a project that I have some friends in Nigeria working on mm. called SendCash. And both of them, whether they're dealing with Lightning or mainchain Bitcoin, they, they kind of do a halfway thing where with SendCash, you from any Bitcoin wallet, you send Bitcoin to their service. And then the recipient gets Naira in their Nigerian, any Nigerian bank account minutes later, right? Again, you're, you're using a trusted third party, but it's really interesting because there's just limited amount of information that gets collected about you. Um, and you're kind of starting to build this parallel infrastructure that's kind of halfway out. Uh, similar with Strike, like obviously like I'd be using a debit card to pay for something, like let's say at like a marijuana store in Colorado, obviously would be the, why they built this thing, I think. But, you know, the idea of like me going in and using my debit card and my credit card company only sees the word strike on my payment. They have no idea what I paid for. They have literally no idea. And then the, the person who's running the shop, you know, just makes a lightning invoice, right? So again, even some of these halfway solutions, which I think are starting to happen more and more now, which act as bridges between Bitcoin and the financial system, the legacy financial system are very, very interesting. All right. So two more questions and then we'll be done. But five years from now, what's your best and worst scenario, a worst case scenario for Bitcoin? Yeah. I mean, best case scenario would be that uh, there's like an increased amount of funding and support and momentum for privacy that in five years, the average Bitcoin transaction is really, really hard to track, largely due to like things like CoinSwap, where even if from what I've understood from Belcher, from Chris Belcher, if even five to 10% of transactions are coin swaps, it basically makes it really, really hard to, to make any assumptions about the rest of the network. So a best case scenario would be that like Bitcoin is very private, um, or at least has what we would call pretty good privacy, right? PGP. And that uh, more and more people in, you know, broken states and repressed areas have learned about it. And, and they use it when they need to. I'm not expecting, again, people to be using this thing for all of their money purposes uh, in this span of five years. But what would be great is if people could realize that, that it, it can be that parallel economic system for them. They can use it if they need to make a remittance or make a donation or pay somebody in a different country. If more and more people can realize that, the, that this is the tool that Bitcoin can be for them, um, that would be amazing. So that's kind of, that would be a, a best case 
Um, worst case would be if the privacy uh, community fails or hits a lot of stagnation. And I, I don't think this is very likely, but um, if basically what might start happening in big countries is that companies that run exchanges where, you know, in the near term, this is where most people are going to get their Bitcoin, not on BISC, unfortunately, they're going to get it off Square or Coinbase or Binance or whatever. If those uh, companies are forced to buy the Chinese and American governments and the Indian government, for example, in the EU to prevent withdrawals to customers legally, um, then you're going to start seeing this like uh, kind of two Bitcoins thing where like there's like the regulated Bitcoin and the unregulated Bitcoin. And I, I, I don't, I still think Bitcoin survives and does fine, but like that would not be desirable. Like if it was in America, if it was like, if it was, if you got a fine, if you were using Bitcoin, you know, in a way where you had custody as opposed to using it via Square or Coinbase or whatever, like that would really suck. Um, so that would be unfortunate. Hmm. All right. 20 years from now, how do you think Bitcoin affects human rights? 20 years from now, we'll say 20 years and beyond. I think that. 20 years from now, all government officials will know about Bitcoin. They'll know it exists. And I think it will, by then, be valuable enough that it, it kind of will give people a second thought to, and maybe take, take the ability away somewhat from governments and corporations from committing some of these massive crimes that they commit, simply because in that world, maybe it's more difficult for them to get, you know, to, to, to spend hard money on it. Right. I think you've talked a lot about this, but it's easy to spend easy money. Right. I mean, governments can just make it um, and they can do bad things with it. And, and I still think, I, I think easy money will actually always exist in a parallel, parallel alongside to Bitcoin, even if it, the world becomes hyper Bitcoinized, I still think, I still think uh, easy money exists, um, but easy money will be just, Ironically, I think it'll be more volatile and mm -hmm. uh, and not worth a lot. And they'll need in the far future, governments will sort of need Bitcoin to do big things. Um, and it's real, and they'll have to part with it. And it'll again, it'll it sort of imposes a cost on their decision making, where easy money mm. doesn't impose that cost as much, right? Um, so I do think you'll see, like, hopefully, a, a drawdown on the massive depredations that governments do uh, commit these days both with regard to like hot war and conflict and then also internal repression. Mm -hmm. um, and then also, I just think it gives uh, people pause. Like again, the Russian idea example is so interesting where like the Russian government is hesitant now to shut down people's bank accounts because they know they'll use Bitcoin. Like if you carry that out 20 years in the future, it'll be very, it'll be sort of this cat and mouse game where like governments are sort of hesitant to do things potentially like massive control or taxation systems that are, that may be unjust because they know people will just move to Bitcoin, right? If it, if it indeed, if it just continues to increase in, in terms of saleability and liquidity and things like that over 20 years, it'll be really widespread and easy to get. Um, and anybody would be able to get some, right? Or do their business in it. And uh, again, I think it's like still a percentage of the economy and the, a percentage of what we do, we would do in Bitcoin. I still think that, that fiat money would exist and, and that a lot would be settled in it, et cetera. And that, even today, most money is credit anyway. So, you know, like loans and, and whether it be personal loans, corporate loans, mortgages, I, I think all these things would still probably be done with, with easy money, but it really does kind of put a check to, uh, it sort of puts an ultimate check maybe to what, to what these folks can do. And more importantly, it gives a lifeline. So if anything, in 20 years, I really think that 
no matter how repressive the government, people in those countries will have a way out and hopefully a way to move their their money. And that's can be more powerful than voting, right? If you if you decide to move your talents and your value and your time and your effort, which you've turned into Bitcoin, and you decide to leave your country with that and go somewhere else, like that's a huge hit to your country, right? It's a brain drain effect. So hopefully you'll see like, just again, more usability and understanding and education about Bitcoin so that more people can do that. More people can realize, oh my God, I can, I can just sell off my assets into Bitcoin and then I can go somewhere else and they'll accept me. So um, a little bit of that idea of uh, the futuristic idea of like uh, that go- governments will have to start competing over their people. So hopefully in 20 plus years, maybe 20, 30, 40 years, you start seeing that effect as well as the overall general effect of um, a new kind of hard money becoming really globally popular and shrinking the, the worst depredations that, that governments can do on their people. That, w- that would be a great outcome. Yeah, I mean, it, it sounds like what you're saying is that currently governments have a monopoly over money, but in 20 years, they'll, they'll actually have to compete and like give features that people want instead of, uh, instead of acting like tyrants. Yeah. And again, the Russian example is super interesting to play in your, within your mind because it, it also goes for monetary policy. Like if governments know that people can opt into Bitcoin, maybe they're more careful about doing stuff with fiat, right? So same thing like with the human rights space. If they know that if they shut down your bank account and repress you that you'll move to Bitcoin, maybe they won't do that. So it'll be very interesting to see this cat and mouse game play out both geopolitically, but also within countries over the next 20 years as Bitcoin becomes more and more popular. Uh, I'm here for it. And I guess my final thought on this would be that, uh, yeah, I think Bitcoin is this Trojan horse for freedom. And I think that governments and corporations are going to look at Bitcoin eventually and be like, oh, I totally want in on that. Whether it's to break US sanctions or just to make money as a speculative store of value, they'll want it. And what they don't realize is inside of Bitcoin is, is, is a freedom tool. It's this amazing cypherpunk tool that's confiscation resistant, censorship resistant, permissionless, global, borderless, digitally scarce, decentralized. They don't know any of that stuff. They just think it's going to make them rich or allow them to break sanctions, right? So I do think that like uh, they'll do it to themselves. You know, governments and corporations will sort of do it to themselves and that ultimately, you know, it'll be really hard to, to stop this thing, which is uh, why it's an exciting time to be alive, despite all of the, <laughs> the dreariness and, and bad news. I, I do think Bitcoin gives us a lot of optimism. You know? All right. So where can people find you and your work? Yeah. So people can follow the work of the Human Rights Foundation at hrf.org or hrf on Twitter. Again, we're working around the world to help people who live under authoritarian governments. They can come in person and meet these people and, and really experience an amazing festival atmosphere at the Oslo Freedom Forum, which hopefully will be sort of back on track next spring in its, uh, you know, it manifests in Norway in a three to four day conference, which I highly recommend people check out. Uh, They can follow me on Twitter at Gladstein, G-L-A-D-S-T-E-I-N. And they can check out the Bitcoin Development Fund. Uh, If you go to hrf.org slash dev fund, you can can learn about it. And you can expect some news uh, from us next month on that, on our next kind of wave of grants. Well, thanks for being on the show. It was a pleasure talking to you about this. And uh, the conversation certainly went in places that I didn't quite expect. So it was great. Always a pleasure, Jimmy. Thanks for having me on. Well, that wraps it up for this episode of Bitcoin Fixes This. Alex Gladstein can be found at at Gladstein on Twitter and hrf.org. Until next time, fiat delenda est.